This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Romans 13. If you're new today, we've been walking through the book of Romans uh, together. Really thankful for Wilson uh, preaching last uh, Sunday. And uh, we're going to get back to Romans this morning. Romans 13, and we're going to kind of look at the whole chapter. It's a relatively short uh, chapter. And, and it talks about the law of the state, like how we relate to governing authorities. Uh, as believers and, and how we relate to one another and the law of, of love. The law of the state and the law of love. Romans chapter 13, um, if you are using one of the Bibles in the pews, that's page 948, and uh, you'll need it as we walk through this chapter together. So let's stand in honor of God's word as we read it together. Romans chapter 13, and let's look at the whole chapter this morning. The Bible says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself." Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness And put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You can be seated. Oh, Father, as we come before your your word now, we ask for you to speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we we need you. Uh, We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word 
today, Lord, it, we, we know that it is, it is not in, in, our, in our nature to be able to, to, to grasp the things of God, but we know that as, as believers that your Holy Spirit enables us to, to understand, to comprehend the things of the Spirit. So, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us now. Lord, we, we get this opportunity to come together as a, as a, as a body of, of Christ. We get the opportunity at the end of this service today to be a part of, of your table together as a, as a family of brothers and sisters. But even now, we pray that you would be preparing our hearts for the table through the, the word, that, Lord, you would encounter us and speak to each of us knowing who we are knowing the needs in our lives, knowing our burdens, knowing our challenges, knowing our sins, knowing exactly what we need this morning. And so, Lord, help us to lock in right now on you, on your word. Give us hearts to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to kind of uh, refresh you guys, a couple of weeks ago when we were at the end of Romans 12, Paul was talking there about how we are to treat our enemies. How are we to treat our enemies on a personal level? So let's go back to the end of chapter 12 and just look at a few things that he said there by way of reminder. Look at chapter 12 and verse 14. It says there, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Look at chapter 12 and verse 17. He says, repay no one evil for evil. Look at verse 19. He says, beloved Never avenge yourselves. So on a personal level, we are not, as Christians, we are not to treat our enemies in kind, but with kindness. As Christians, we are not to lash out at our enemies. We are to love our enemies. But now at the beginning of chapter 13, He wants to make it clear that the governing authorities do have a role to play in bringing punishment to those who who do evil. And so in in verses 1 through 7 here of chapter 13, he's talking about the law of the state. And then in verses 8 and following, He's talking about the law of love. First of all, the law of the state. Verses 1 and 2. Let's look at that together. Verses 1 and 2. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur Judgment. Now, notice here at the beginning of verse 1 that this is for who? For every person. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, and that includes believers. Why? Well, because God has ordained these governing authorities. 
They exist because he put them in place. And so therefore, submission to the governing authorities is an issue of obedience to a higher authority, God. Now, why has God put these governing authorities in place? Well, try to imagine life without them. You say, well, I can imagine life without the government sometimes. Well, okay, but think real serious about that. Think hard about that. What would the world be like, you know, with no laws, right? With no due process and things like that. No, uh, of course, what would our world be like without, for instance, police officers patrolling our streets and our neighborhoods and, and keeping those who are innocent from those who would do harm to the innocent. What would our world be like if we did not have a military to protect us from terrorism and, and those who would, would prey on the innocent? Listen, it's obvious. Okay, in a world like ours, things would very quickly dissolve into violence and chaos and disorder. And our God is not a God of violence and chaos and disorder. He is a God of order and peace. And so in a world like ours, which is fallen and marred by sin, he has ordained that there be governing authorities to secure protection for the innocent and, and order and peace in the midst of a, a world like ours. Now listen, when we think about how we should relate to the governing authorities, we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul. So when you look at the book of Acts, for instance, there you see that as much persecution as he went through personally. I mean, Paul was beaten, he was stoned, he was imprisoned unjustly. I mean, oh, you know, just, just name it. But, but, but on a personal level, Paul never lashed back. He never sought uh, to avenge himself on, on his persecutors. But there are times in the book of Acts when Paul utilized the law of the state for, his, for the protection of himself and other believers. One example of that is in Acts chapter 16. Paul is in Philippi, and he and Silas were attacked by a mob for preaching the gospel, and so this, this mob attacks them, and they beat them, and they drag them before magistrates, which were local governing authorities, and then the magistrates, the governing authorities, joined in the beating of Paul and Silas, which was illegal. And so the governing authorities were joining in with the mob through Paul and Silas in, in prison, and then the next day, the next morning, they sent the jailers to just kind of quietly get them out and send them on their way. And Paul said, no, 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 <laughs> not so fast, because he knew that these governing officials had acted illegally in what they had done. And so we see his handling of this in Acts 16, 37 through 39. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, 
men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so here's an example of Paul utilizing the law of the state, which he knew provided for due process and protection, and insisting that it be followed. Now, an example for us as believers in our own country has to do with concerns regarding religious liberty, because religious liberty is enshrined in our founding documents, and Baptists had a lot to do with that. In fact, Virginia Baptist had a lot to do with that. It was the friendship of of Virginia Baptist pastors with men like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson that had a, a lot to do with religious liberty being enshrined in our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution. It's there. Our documents enshrine religious liberty. But there are those in our culture who would strip away our religious liberty in a heartbeat if they had the opportunity. And so we must insist as believers that the law be followed, that, that, that religious freedom be preserved. We, we must insist on that. The law is, is on our side at, at this point in our country. And we should insist that it be followed when people try to strip us of our religious freedom, we must say, no, you can't do that. Um, and so it's, we, we must stand for that. And when we go to the polls, one of the main questions that we should ask, it's not the only question, but it's a really important question is, will this man or woman stand for religious liberty and will they appoint judges that will uphold religious liberty? Okay, and so we see Paul doing that. At the same time, there are times when the government itself becomes unjust and when laws seek to force us to disobey God. What then? Well, we also see examples of that in the book of Acts. So, in the days of the early church, in Acts chapter 4, we see there that the governing authorities try to prevent the early believers from proclaiming the gospel. How do the early believers handle that? Acts chapter 4 in verses 18 through 20. So they call them and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we're not going to quit sharing the gospel. We see the same thing in chapter 5 of Acts, verses 27 through 29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So the principle here is very clear, all right? We are to submit 
to the, the governing authorities until and unless those governing authorities are trying to get us to sin against God. If it's an issue of the governing authorities versus obedience to God, what do we choose? We obey God, it's clear. And now in, in verses three through five, what he does is he, he unpacks this a little bit more about why God has ordained that there be governing authorities. He says, therefore, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Again, God has ordained that there be governing authorities as a restraint on evil, as a check upon evil. And so those who bear the sword are military, police officers, okay, people who are involved in, in protecting other people and securing the peace. Those who bear the sword are acting as, as God's servants in a fallen world. And so listen, if you are serving um, in the military, if you're serving as a police officer, if you're, if you're bearing uh, the sword, listen, you are serving God in what you do. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you do. You, you are protecting the, the rest of us uh, from evil in, in, in a fallen world. So, you know, like the Bible says that, that one day people, when Jesus comes again, Isaiah 2.4 says that, that people are going to beat their swords into plowshares. There's not going to be any more need for military and police or people bearing the sword, right? It's going to be a thing of the past. But until that day comes, there have to be those who bear the sword because of the presence of evil in a fallen world. Innocent people need to be protected. Verses 6 and, and, and 7. He says, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So paying taxes so that these structures of, of peace and security and protection that the government provides, paying taxes so that those governing structures can be maintained is part of our obedience to God. The law of the state. Okay, second, the law of love. The law of love. Verse 8. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So, in verses 6 and 7, he says, pay what you owe, pay your, pay your taxes. But now in verse 8, he's talking about a debt that you are going to continue to pay. There comes a point in paying your taxes when you've paid them 
and you're done. But when it comes to the debt of love, you're never done. We are to continue to love other people because as we're doing that, we are showing our, our love for God because his law ultimately is fulfilled in love. We see that in the great commandment in Matthew 22. Someone approaches Jesus and they say, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you show love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your, and your mind. And this is the first great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so what's the essence of the Christian life? Look up to God in faith and out to your neighbor in love because as you love your neighbor, you are showing love for God who commanded you to love your neighbor. That's the, that's the, the great commandment. Um, and, and it also is summed up in the Ten Commandments, which is where Paul is going next, verses 9 and 10. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, And any other commandment is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law, just as Jesus said in the great commandment. Now listen, here's the the problem. All of us have fallen short of that. <laughs> Not a single one of us has, has loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not a single one of us has come close to loving our neighbor as ourselves. We have failed in carrying out that great commandment in a zillion ways, right? And we have, we have violated that commandment. In, in, in a zillion ways, I mean, in, in our lives, we have fallen pitifully, pitifully short of that. The good news of the gospel is that there was one who fulfilled the great commandment perfectly. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the great commandment. Jesus perfectly loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He perfectly loved other people. Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law, and then on the cross, he took our violations of that law. He took our sins on himself and paid the penalty and rose from the dead so that when we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and receive him as our Savior, his perfect righteousness is credited to our account so that as we sung earlier, his grace really is enough. We are standing in his grace. And so if you don't know Christ, turn to him. You don't want to stand before a holy God one day covered in in your own righteousness, which the Bible says is like filthy rags. You want to stand before God clothed in the perfect righteousness of, of, of Jesus. And listen, we're all going to stand before him one day What does he say here um, in verse 11? He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, 
For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, at first, that verse may seem puzzling because he, clearly here he's talking about believers, right? He says at the end of verse 11, when, when we first believe. So he's talking here about believers, but then he says salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You say, well, wait a second. I thought salvation had already come to us. Well, it has. But what Paul is doing here is he's talking about salvation in its ultimate sense. And salvation in its ultimate sense occurs when Jesus comes again and believers are raised with glorified resurrection bodies. That's the ultimate of salvation. Now, when is that going to occur? Well, we don't know when it's going to occur, but we do know this. We know that it's closer to happening today than it was yesterday. That's what he says here in verse 11. He says, it's nearer to us now than when we first believed. And so the issue is, are you ready? Are you ready? We're not promised tomorrow. Your life could end today. Jesus could return today. Are you ready to meet him? And if you're not a believer, then turn to Jesus now. Now, while you have the opportunity. And if you are a believer, and your, li and your life has become complacent, and you've become lukewarm in your walk with him, that's not the state that you want to be in. That's not the way you want to meet Jesus. And he could return at, at any moment. Look at verse 12. He says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. The return of Christ is imminent. It could return literally at any moment. And so live your life as if he were going to come today. I love what a young Jonathan Edwards wrote in, in one, of his, one of his resolutions that, that he wrote as a young man. Jonathan Edwards, a great, uh, the great pastor and theologian, wrote, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. Oh, brothers and sisters, we should live our lives as if Jesus died yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is coming back tomorrow. Look at the latter part of, of verse 12. He says, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What are you wearing? Have you strapped on your spiritual Kevlar? Or are you a soft target for the enemy? Verse 13. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Now remember, verse 13 is written to the church. He's writing here to believers but these believers are living in the pagan city of Rome. Before they became believers, many of them had come out of lifestyles just like this. 
lifestyles that were characterized by sexual immorality and sensuality, lifestyles that were characterized by the abuse of alcohol. It was all around them. And and many of their family members and their friends and people that they work with and their neighbors were still involved in these sinful lifestyles. It was just, and so it was all around these believers. And Paul is saying here, don't let your guard down. Don't let your guard down. Put on the armor of light. You are surrounded by sin all the time. Be vigilant. Because these things should, should no longer characterize our lives. Notice he says at the end of, of verse 13, not in quarreling and jealousy. You know, how in the world can we as the church make an impact on those that are outside the church, on unbelievers, if we, if we can't get it together ourselves? You know, if we're quarreling with one another ourselves, how in the world can we make an impact on the outside world? We will not. We will push them further away if we give way to petty things like quarreling and jealousy within the church. It should have no place in the body of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what Pastor Ray Stedman said about this. Stedman said, when I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending them to be a part of me all day, to go where I go and do what I do. They cover me and make me presentable to others. That is the purpose of clothes. In the same way, the apostle is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you get up in the morning. Make him a part of your life that day. Intend that he go with you everywhere you go and that he act through you in everything you do. Call upon his resources. Live your life in Christ. And part of living your life in Christ is controlling your thought life. That's what he says, it talks about at the end of verse 14. Right, he says there, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, when he talks about the flesh here, he's not talking about like our, you know, the stuff that covers our skeleton. He's talking about our sinful nature. And he says, make no provision for your sinful nature. The Greek word that's translated in the ESV as provision means to give forethought to. So in other words, he's saying here that we are not to even think about sin. Like when sinful thoughts enter our minds, we can't let them linger. Do not let them linger. Reject them. Cast them away immediately. Because before things become sinful actions, they are sinful thoughts that we have given provision to. We have allowed them to linger in our minds and we've been thinking about sinning. Don't do it. Take tight control of your thought life. Don't even think about sin. Now, these verses, verses 13 and 14, uh, have uh, an, an incredibly historic place 
in the history of the church and even in the history of the world because God used these two verses in the conversion of Augustine who would go on to dramatically impact the whole history, not only of the church, but the whole history of Western thought. It was late August in 386 AD. Augustine was 32 years old. He had been in the midst of an intense spiritual struggle. He was not a Christian. He was doing all that he could to resist the Lord, but the hound of heaven was on his trail. And things came to a head one day when he walked outside of his house into a garden. And I want to read to you what Augustine says happened. He writes this in his classic book, his Confessions. Augustine says, there was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I found myself driven to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? And at that point, he heard some children playing next door. And they were playing this game with one another where they would call out to one another, take up and read. Take up and read. And Augustine took that to be a word from God to pick up this Bible and open it at random. And he opened it and it fell upon these two verses. Romans 13 and verses 13 and 14. And he read them and the Spirit of God pierced his heart. And he said, I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. It was done. It was done. God opened his heart and granted repentance and faith. And he put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. With heads bowed and eyes closed, as we prepare to take part in the Lord's Supper today, is there someone here who has not yet repented and believed in Christ? And you've been saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, you've been putting this off. Oh, friend, you're not even promised tomorrow. None of us are. Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. You know, apart from that, this supper has no meaning for you. And if your life should end or if Jesus were to return today, you're not ready The Bible says day is breaking. Jesus is coming. Turn to him today, right now, in repentance and faith. And if you were here as a believer, the scripture says to examine yourself before you take the bread and the cup. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Are you holding on to things that you need to let go of for the glory of God? Are you cherishing sin within your heart? 
Do you have malice in your heart or a grudge in your heart against a brother or sister in Christ? Let's spend some moments in silent self-examination and confession as believers. And if you are not yet a believer, I invite you to turn to Jesus now and trust in Him as your Savior and King. Let's spend some moments in silence together. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.